0: Well, good morning. Merry Christmas. My name is John Allen. Welcome to Risen Church. Uh, anybody enjoy the Christmas party this past week? Anybody there? Um, I, I had a great time. I loved it. Our team did a great job uh, taking care of everything. So we had a, we had a, a, a fun team and a, a number of people that were very much involved. Can we give them a hand real quick? Because it was a great, great, great job. Um, I, I think the best part uh, is sort of that we're we're kind of like an all-hands-on-deck kind of church, so everybody is involved in some way. Even if you just came and you just sort of smiled and laughed, that actually matters a lot. So we're really thankful for your presence. Uh, this is who we are as a church, is that we are a community of people that love to get together, gather together, and worship Jesus together, um, and so... Again, thank you. Uh, one of the, also, one of the things that I love most about our church is how much authentic joy there is in this church. I mean, and I'm talking like joy, not just happiness. Um, I was looking around the room this week and, and, you know, we had all the decorations and everybody had their like crazy Christmas attire on and uh, I saw so many joyful faces, not just happy faces because there is a difference. In fact, I'd say that true joy is only available to a true Christian, and I'm going to show you what I mean by that this morning. Uh, I, I've been a full-time pastor now for over 11 years, and uh, I, I realized pretty early on that as a pastor, you get sort of like the, the inside, behind-the-scenes story, kind of a look into many people's lives. And I don't know if you realize this or not, but uh, life can be a little difficult, right? Right? Like, and people don't always wear it on their sleeve, but the reality is that in this world, we face trouble, right? It happens. And so this past week, I was looking around the room, and, and I saw so many smiling and friendly faces, and, and it dawned on me that these people aren't just happy. There's a, a joyfulness there. Because I saw people who were having fun. That's great, Right? But I also saw people who were walking through really difficult seasons. I saw people that were burdened with sorrows that, that are just a part of a fallen world. And I saw a lot of people that had a reason to be upset. Truly. But they were here, and they were laughing, and they were smiling, and I would say they were rejoicing. So see, the thing about trials and troubles is that you know, they tend not to take a Christmas vacation, right? <laughs> and so the reality, though, was that the joy is still so real. And it's so good. And so when I looked around, I didn't just see a room full of happy people. I saw a room full of joyful people. And I see that every morning. When we gather together, I still see that. And I'm not, Again, I'm not just talking about people who are trying to compartmentalize all their troubles as though they don't matter. Right? That's what the world does. The world tries to uh, compartmentalize and even inebriate, medicate, in the sense of like, things like alcohol or even entertainment and just kind of check out, right? And sometimes, that's, you, know, sometimes you just got to like, take a break, right? However, just forgetting about the issues and pretending everything's okay, that darkness is still going to hover over you. It's darkness still is kind of in the background. To the untrained eye, I think risen church may seem like a room full of happy people, right? And it may seem like everybody's life is like easy and have no troubles. A lot of times people will come to church and they, they think, well, I'm the only one that's got any issues, right? To the immature mind, it might seem like you're the only one who has any real problems or you're the only one that's dealing with that looming darkness. And it can make you feel alone and isolated, which is exactly what the enemy wants to do. Honestly, I wish that I could let you see what I see when I look around this room. Because I don't just see happiness. I see something way deeper. Like Happiness is contingent on the happenings around you. As long as things are easy or comfortable and they're going the way that you want them to go or the way that you think they should go, then you're happy. And there's nothing wrong with being happy right? I like being happy. Happiness is good, but it's fickle, and it's shallow. Nothing wrong with it, but joy transcends what's happening around you. It anchors our soul in what's already happened through the cross and resurrection. That's why this joy is only available to those who have received that Foundation. It's rock solid. Winds and waves can come. The sands can shift. God never changes. Neither does his grace for you and his love for you. And there's a deep joy that comes from that. The joy establishes our souls upon the firm foundation of God's unconditional, never-ending, unrelenting. Steadfast grace and kindness. And that only comes through faith in Christ alone. Because the truth is that when you're with people that are kind of like just hidden and they find that they even need to hide themselves in the grace of Jesus Christ, then you find yourself surrounded by people who have seen a great light even in the darkness. Then you're immersed in a community that's experienced the goodness of God in such a way that their joy transcends anything this world can throw at them. So when I look around the room, and when I looked around this room this past Wednesday, I see people who are filled with the presence of God himself and the fullness of joy that that that, that comes with. So again, that doesn't mean that you're never sad or that it's not okay to be sad or to experience sorrow and suffering. What it means is that we've come to grips with the realities of this fallen world, but the difference is that we can truly take heart even in the midst of it all because Jesus has overcome the world, and he's with us. That's what Christianity is all about. Emmanuel, God with us. The presence of God, the fullness of joy, because the light of the world has come, because the light shines in the darkness, because the darkness has not overcome it, and because the Savior King of the universe is here with us and within us. Because while trouble may last for the night, joy comes in the morning, and the morning star has risen, and he is with us even here and now. That's actually the thing that most people tend to compartmentalize, and they forget that he's with us. You get so locked in on the circumstances that you forget about the true and eternal circumstance that transcends everything. Because this is where true, authentic, everlasting, never-ending, unrelenting joy comes from, even in the darkest hour. This is what Christmas is all about. It's not just about happiness. Praise God for happiness, right? But praise him even more. I would say Rejoice exceedingly with great joy for his joy. Because though the darkness may be great, Jesus is greater and he's with us. Man, if Christmas means anything, it means that. I love Psalm 1611. It's just jam-packed with so much goodness. It says, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Anybody know who's at the right hand of God Almighty? God the Father? Who's at the right hand of God the Father? Jesus. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This world has counterfeit pleasures, tons of them. They can make you happy, but they're not going to bring you true joy. That's only found in Christ alone. One of my favorite things to do is to let Scripture interpret Scripture. If you know me, you know that by now, right? So um, King David actually wrote this psalm. He wrote Psalm 16, and and he also wrote Psalm 23. So real quick, I want to let King David bring kind of like a commentary to Psalm 1611 that we just read, all right? So I'm going to infuse it with Psalm 23, all right? You guys ready? It's like the pre-sermon before the sermon, all right? Here we go. (laughs) Psalm 1611 says, you make known to me the path of life. Psalm 23, verse 1 says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. Man, I pray this Christmas would be a restoration for your soul. Anybody need that? I need it. Right? Like he leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me, even in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever, because at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And who's at the right hand of God the Father? Jesus. So for the past few weeks, we've been talking uh, about Advent. We've been walking through our Advent series, as we approach Christmas. And so the purpose behind this series is to prepare our hearts and, in a sense, make room for the power of Christmas, right? To, like, really soak in what happened on that holy night and how his first coming or his first Advent, or appearing, is what that means, it has changed absolutely everything. And so we began with Pastor Dave Wolchewski kicking off this series on week one by lighting the Advent candle of hope. Right, And we started with Isaiah 9, verse 2, which says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. And then we lit the second candle, which represents God's faithfulness. And we saw how faithful God was to Mary as she entrusted herself to the Lord and even treasured up his faithfulness to her and pondered it all in her heart. And then last week, Zul Chaudhry lit the uh, Advent candle of peace, and we learned uh, what peace really is and where it comes from, and we leaned into the reality of God's pleasure and delight in his people, and we soaked in the power of receiving that delight in us as his spirit-filled grace-bought sons and daughters. So this morning, we've come to the Advent candle number four, which is joy. Say Joy. joy. All right, let's see if I can joyfully light this thing without... Beautiful. All right. So, fourth advent candle is joy. So, we've got hope, we've got the faithfulness of God, and now we've got joy. And this morning, we're going to read about the magi or the wise men in Matthew 2, verse 1 through 18. It's the story of these wise men who go to great lengths from far away for one single purpose. And I want to show you how these Uh, Wise men travel from the far reaches of the known world simply to celebrate and to treasure and to rejoice exceedingly with great joy over the child king of the universe. So here's what I want you to get this morning. If you get nothing else, here's what I want you to get. True joy is only found in God's presence. True joy is only found in God's presence. Turn with me to Matthew 2, verse 1 through 18. Let's read through this story. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men or magi from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born the king of Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all of the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They departed to their own country by another way. Now when they departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old and under, according to the time that had, he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, a voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and, lament, and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. So we've got a number of characters in this story. And all of them have very different responses to the presence of King Jesus. And that's what I kind of want to look at is their responses to the presence of Jesus or their responses to Christmas. Now you've probably heard this story a lot, many of you maybe, maybe this is the first time, Um, so this may uh, shed a little extra light on it, Uh, I I think we're going to dive into this stuff a little bit here, but essentially what I want you to see here is the responses of these people to Christmas. First, we have Herod and the people of Israel. Their response to the presence of Jesus is irritation, which eventually turns into full-blown hostility. And then we have the chief priests and the scribes. They represent the religious leaders of Israel. And they have all this head knowledge about the Messiah. Like they've they've read their Bibles. They know all the facts. But they don't seem to really care that he's actually come. That he's present. Right? Their response to his presence is apathy. Which also eventually will turn into full-blown hostility. But the magi, or the wise men, they respond very differently. They're these these pagans from foreign nations. In many ways, they've been portrayed as the enemies of God's people who are Israel throughout the centuries. Like, if you read the Bible, they're all over it. Like, if anyone has a reason to be indifferent, irritated, or even hostile towards the presence of the king of the Jews, it's going to be them. But what we see is that they're neither irritated or hostile, and they're definitely not apathetic. Their response to the presence of Jesus is actually pure joy. So I want to back up here. Again, who were these wise men? Who were these magi? Like, where did they come from and why? And what kind of star appears and then reappears in a way that guides them to a particular house in Bethlehem? What's that about, right? So we've we've actually seen, as I said, these magi. We've seen them in the Old Testament before, right? We've we've seen them in the Book of Daniel. Um, There's actually a school in Babylon that's devoted to seeking out the mysteries of creation, kind of like stargazing. In order, they're they're trained up to to be highly regarded as these royal counselors for ancient pagan kings. So it was common for ancient kings to have these divine counselors. Like Pharaoh had his magicians in Egypt, if you remember those stories. Or the Chaldeans of Babylon, which we saw in the book of Daniel. And this is probably why people traditionally associate the magi with kings, because they would have been people who were trained up as royal counselors. Right? So that's why a lot of people, they, they think these are three kings. Right? You guys know the story, you know, we, three kings, Savori, and our Bearing gifts, we traverse the far field and fountain, moor and mountain. Nobody? I'm alone. Following yonder star. All right. But throughout the Old Testament, again, these are royal counselors, and they're presented actually as hostile enemies of God and his people. And they're positioned against godly men like Moses or Daniel. But here in Matthew 2, the script is totally flipped. We get these non-Jewish Gentile outsiders and they're presented as the godly men who are positioned against the leaders of Israel who turn out to be themselves the hostile enemies of God. That's very different. And that would have been a radical and really offensive testimony, especially from Matthew, who's writing his gospel account to a predominantly Jewish audience. So this statement was clear that God's desire was to bring light to all nations through Israel, not just to Israel. See, Israel's role from the beginning was to be a light to the world. They were given a come and see the goodness of the Lord kind of commission, right? Right? Come and see the weight of sin and the promise of a Savior. Come and see the temple. Come and see these things. This is why Jesus got so upset when they cluttered the outer court of the temple. That's why he's flipping tables over, because he's saying, you're not allowing those who want to come and see what's happening here a chance to see it. You've cluttered it with your own agendas and your own comforts and your own desires for power and control. And so what we see here is that Matthew kicks off with a come-and-see picture, right? And what we're also going to see, by the way, is that the end of Matthew, if you've ever read the end of Matthew, you know that there is the Great Commission. And so it's not just to come and see the gospel, it's to go and tell the gospel, And so what we see here, though, over and over again with the people of God, and we are no different, that the people of God tend to lose sight of the covenant that they have with the Lord, and they lose sight of his heart, and they become enamored with with their own agendas for comfort and power and control and influence and affluence. But the Lord is faithful to fulfill his purposes even when his people aren't. And so just like God in his mercy spoke to Balaam in the Old Testament through the mouth of a donkey, if you don't know that story, it's wild, it happened, it's crazy, but just like that, he mercifully speaks through this star to these magi, and he draws near to those who desire to draw near to him, even in spite of the indifferent or even hostile efforts of his covenant people. So we see people who are seeking truth in creation. We see stargazers that are longing for truth, but they're looking for it in all the wrong places. Like they're gazing into the darkness and the abyss. Some people read the story of the wise men and they think it's biblical evidence for astrology and horoscopes and that sort of thing. You ever heard that? People love to turn to the wise men and say, look, this is why it's okay to do your horoscopes and get your sign and do the tarot cards and all that stuff. Like people... So many people have even devoted their lives to trying to figure out what this star was and what it might mean for us today, right? They get caught up in trying to figure out how a star could move like this. Like, like what kind of star could have communicated all this information about Jesus and then, and then guide them by appearing and then disappearing and then rising again and then somehow hovering over one particular house in Bethlehem? People have devoted their entire lives to this. Like, there's so many documentaries about this, especially around Christmas, right? Some say it's all tied to the king constellation, Leo, and the king planet, Jupiter, and how it all communicated this gospel story in the stars. Like, maybe it was a comet or a supernova or, or a combination of all that that made a star hover and then appear and then disappear, Right? Some even say that the story of Revelation twelve, if you've read that, or you were here in our series, it, it, like that—that that picture of the gospel was spelled out in the night sky using these planets and these constellations, and communicating it to these astrologists. In fact, many astronomers actually admit that there was a lot of cosmic activity that was happening around this time period. So, is that what this star is all about, then? Like, is this how it all went down? Is that how it happened? Here's my expert opinion on the star. You ready? It was miraculous. Like Other than that, I got no idea. Right? And neither do they, honestly. Like, could all of that have happened? Absolutely. I think some of it probably did. Like, God is the creator of the universe, and he's going to speak the language of the people he's trying to reach. Right? But... None of that, none of it is the point of this passage. In fact, the point is here that God met these lost stargazers who were vainly groping in the dark for answers with his light that guided them to the truth. You see, they were staring into the abyss, and God met them there. Like, they didn't find God because they were so learned and wise. God found them and drew them unto himself because he is so merciful. Right? The wise men can't be like, ha-ha, we got it, we figured it out. And you too can if you just figure out these constellations and study the sky and do all the things. That's not what this is saying. Like, this is not justification for astrology, horoscopes, and tarot cards. God's people were told over and over again throughout the Old Testament, do not get caught up in all that junk. Like, trying to tell the future using astrology is actually prohibited in Scripture. Multiple verses in the Old Testament, like Jeremiah and Isaiah, prohibit and even mock astrology. Like The story of the Magi doesn't validate astrology. It simply emphasizes God's mercy upon a lost and wayward people who were groping vainly in the dark. Now remember, astrology is different from astronomy. So this is like a side note, right? Astronomy is the study of the cosmos. Like nothing wrong with that. That's beautiful. Like, that's just diving into the glory of creation. Astrology is when you start taking those things as if they have divine power in themselves. That totally misses the point. So, again, thank God for his mercy to meet us in this way, like even in our sin. He meets us in our lostness. He meets us in the darkness. He meets us in our vain efforts. And he shines the light of his grace and truth that leads us to Jesus. Notice it also led these magi to those who did know the word of God. That's a whole other thing. So these magi just show up in Jerusalem, they start asking about the Bible and the Messiah. And it says that the entire city is troubled by their message. So now most nativity scenes include three wise men who are standing over the manger with the newborn baby Jesus, right? It's like Mary, Joseph, the shepherds, and then these three wise men. You guys know what I'm talking about? Some of you have these nativity scenes at home. I do. Um, But the truth is, we don't know how many. First of all, we don't have a clue how many magi there were. Traditionally, there were three of them. But that's only because they brought three types of gifts as, as tribute to the child king. Okay? So it's more likely that there was an entire caravan of these magi from the east. And they potentially came from all over the pagan world. Especially since verse 3 tells us that their arrival has impacted the entire city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was not a small town. So an arrival of three people would not have made a stir, but an entire caravan would have probably caused a ruckus, right? And so also it seems pretty clear that they didn't show up on the night of Christ's birth. Like remember that Herod tried to figure out how old Jesus was by determining when they saw the star rise, And so then when the Magi didn't return, he issued a decree to kill all the male children who were two years old and under, which means that if the star appeared to the wise men when Christ was born, then they would have arrived when Jesus was just under two years old. Also, notice that when the wise men get to the place where Jesus is, Matthew makes it clear that they're in an actual house, right? Like they're not camped out with the donkeys and cows anymore. Like Joseph found a better spot for his young family P.S if you want to have an accurate nativity scene this year you got to put the wise men on the other side of the room <laughs> right like I'm on the way I'm coming um, but it's not pretty though I get it I, I, Hannah's like just leave them together it's fine <laughs> um, so we've, we've, now we've come to Herod right so we've got King Herod who is this guy so he's, this is actually not the true king of Israel at all. So his claim to the throne is illegitimate, and he's there simply because he's a puppet of Rome, which is why he's so insecure about this prophecy. Because it's a prophecy of the true king of the Jews. So these magi show up talking about the presence of the true king, and it shakes him. Herod's number one goal is to retain power. He needs to control the world around him his only hope for happiness is contingent upon his power and control being absolute history actually tells us that he even killed his own wife because he feared her relatives would take his throne so he's nuts but he's driven insane because of his need for power and it's caused him to be extremely insecure So he needs to be the king over his own destiny even. And he's willing to do whatever it takes, even if it means going toe to toe with God himself to retain his power. This may sound familiar. Like it sounds foolish, but this is what happens when sin goes unchecked in the human heart. This is what happens when sin goes unchecked in every human heart. This is actually the root of all anxiety. It's not trusting that God is good and that he is king. See, it's easy to point fingers at Herod and question his sanity, but he represents all who declare they know better than God. Herod represents all who sit upon the throne of their own hearts. But deep down, we know that it's a throne of lies. We're not the king. He is. Herod represents so many people. It's why he was such an anxious tyrant. His power is an illusion And the presence of the true king has rattled him. Herod's response to the presence of Jesus is just like the response of all who refuse to trust in Christ as the true king. Many people love to trust in him him as savior, just not as king. So he responds here first with fear and then hostility. But Herod's not the only one troubled by the magi. He's not the only one troubled by the news of the true king. Notice that the people of Israel follow suit. They're also disturbed by the news of these magi. But why? Like, I get why Herod's upset. He's an insecure fraud, right? Like, I get why he's upset about this, but shouldn't the rest of Jerusalem be encouraged by the news of their Messiah? Like, isn't this what they've been waiting for? It should be, but as people tend to do, they've grown comfortable. Even in their oppression under the Romans, much like their ancestors who were enslaved in Egypt because their comfort had blinded them to their true God-given purpose, they've grown comfort. They've grown comfortable. They're okay with an illegitimate king. As long as it doesn't mean trouble for them, you know, don't cause a stir, Like, I know we've been chosen and called to be a light to the world, but we're comfortable. And, And, you know, I don't really want to be inconvenienced by any of that. Like, if that doesn't preach to the American church, I don't know what will. You see, while Herod sought happiness and power, the people sought happiness and comfort. And both were troubled by the presence of Jesus because both of those things are highly fickle and leave us extremely insecure. None of it's joy. For them, Christmas was an inconvenience. And it wasn't long before their annoyance with the presence of Jesus gave way to full-blown hostility. After all, it's the people of Jerusalem who will later chant, crucify him during the trial of Jesus. And let's not forget that the scribes, uh, uh, well, let's, let's not forget at all about the scribes and the chief priests. Right, like these were the two sects of religious leaders, also known as the Pharisees and the Sadducees. You guys ever heard that before? The Pharisees and the Sadducees think ancient Republicans and Democrats. (laughs) I'm actually not kidding at all. Like they hardly ever agree on anything, right? And we're constantly jockeying for their own agendas of power and influence. And so Herod actually like consults these opposing groups separately, knowing that if they ever agreed on anything, it must be true. And lo and behold, they agree that the Messiah is to be born in Bethlehem. Now I want you to notice that not one of these religious leaders follow the wise men to Bethlehem. It's only five miles away from Jerusalem. It's not that far. Right? Five miles is nothing. Especially for these people that walked all over the known world. They were all Highly educated biblical scholars. They would have been familiar with passages like Psalm 72, verse 8 through 11, which says this. It's Old Testament prophecy. It said, May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Saba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him. All nations Serve him. Now suddenly a caravan of royal counselors from the ends of the earth show up ready to fall down before the king of the Jews and render him gifts of tribute. They would have known about Isaiah 60 verse 3, which predicted that nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. And here these royal counselors from the ends of the earth have followed a light that's risen to draw near to and worship the king of the Jews. These guys would have known about all this. They would have known about Numbers 24, verse 17, which prophesied about a star coming out of Jacob, which was another word for Israel. And here these magi are seeking the great king because of a star. The problem here is not that they weren't connecting the dots. They knew. They were quick to produce the right answer, and I'm sure they loved being right. They just didn't care about the one they were right about. This is what dry religion looks like. It's like they're working at the DMV or like Home Depot. You ever been in situations like this where you walk up and you're like, you know, they're they're like, oh, you're looking for Christ the King, the hope of the world. Yeah, it says here he's in Bethlehem, so you're going to want to take a left out of the palace and walk about five miles It's on your right. Right? But you're on your own from there. Like aisle 27 in the back. Good luck, it's crowded. I can't stand it when people do that. You, ever, you know what I'm talking about? Like, ah, 27, it's, it's difficult. Like, I probably know where it is, but you just guess. You know? I'm like, come with me. Like, sh- can you at least help me find it? Like, I, I need help. You know? But they just kind of point and forget about it. like, over there. Like, don't do that. <sighs> But again, this is, this is the defining characteristic of dry religion. Like, if anyone had reason to rejoice over the Messiah, it's these guys. Like, they should be like, I'm coming. You're serious? Are you for real? Like, these are all these scriptures. You're fulfilling all this stuff. I'm coming. He's in Bethlehem. Let's go. We're door knocking, right? Like, like, let's do this. If anyone had reason, it'd be these guys. But their response to the presence of Jesus is gross indifference. Again, this is the defining characteristic of dry religion. And I'll tell you what, if you know your Bible, you know that that's going to be held into a higher account than anybody else. It's about what you know for them, not who you know. They care more about being right than they care about being in right relationship. And there's no joy in them because they miss the point. They represent all who have the head knowledge but do nothing about it. They just want to be right. And this apathy also eventually gives way to hostility, as their successors would be the very chief priests and scribes that plot to kill Jesus. Now compare the joyless, apathetic, inconvenienced hostility of Herod, the religious leaders and the people of Jerusalem, to these pagan, stargazing magi. They've come from the ends of the earth They've sacrificed their time, their treasure, and their safety to find the true king and offer him the best of the best of all they have. Like, they're not apathetic. They're joyfully tenacious in pursuing the Christ. Like, they aren't annoyed because of inconveniences. They're joyfully sacrificial in generosity. Like, they aren't hostile. They're overflowing with love and delight in the true king and in his presence they rejoice exceedingly with great joy that's starkly contrasted with all the others like this is what christmas is all about like this is what it means to treasure jesus so i want you to see that the wise men represent here the heart of god and the heart of the people of god in response to the presence of jesus this is the joy of Christ. This is the joy of Christmas. It's active, it's intentional, it's expressive, and it's generous because He is worthy. The Christmas isn't just some empty and detached tradition. Christmas isn't some annoyance or an inconvenience. Christmas is about the presence of God with us. Like you may find yourself inconvenienced this Christmas, you may find yourself detached from the actual purpose and presence of God this Christmas. But if you do, I want you to remember. So remember, I want you to remember that Christmas is all about God breaking through into the midst of our darkness and inviting us into his presence and the fullness of joy. He can meet you there. If you find yourself just staring into the abyss, look for the light because he's come. Remember the reality of your eternal circumstance because God became a man and he lived the life that we couldn't live and he died the death that we deserve to die and he conquered death and the grave and he paved the way to eternal life that starts now not just one day when we die it starts now through the indwelling of his spirit that's closer to us than our own skin his presence the fullness of joy Jesus Christ, the right hand of the Father, is with us, with those who are risen in Christ and seated with him in heavenly places. This is our experience. This is the joy that we can have in all circumstances, even in the darkest hour, because we have seen a great light. This is what Christmas is about. The true reality of our eternal circumstances is that he's with us. He'll never forsake us. May we respond this Christmas by leaning into his presence. No matter what the circumstances may be. Look, even when the darkness seems overwhelming, the joy of Christmas is the presence of God with us who has overcome the world. Sam Storms put it perfectly. I love this. Got the quote. I want you to see it. because I want you to just soak this in. It was almost my main point. Joy is not necessarily the absence of suffering. It's the presence of God. Think about that. Joy is not necessarily the absence of suffering. It's the presence of God. Because true joy only happens in the presence of God. Remember the context of the Magi. They had more reason than anyone to be apathetic, annoyed, or hostile, but instead they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Why? Because even in the dark, they'd seen a great light, and his name is Jesus. Billy Sunday once said, if there's no joy in your life, then there's a leak in your Christianity somewhere. <laughs> I want to close with this. We just sang Joy to the World, right? Joy to the World, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart Prepare him room. Will you prepare him room this Christmas? We prepare room for so many things, for so many people. We prepare to to, to make sure we've got all the stuff that we need and to, to make sure that the job is done so that we can have that week off or whatever it is. We prepare all these things. But are we preparing our hearts, room for him in our hearts? Will you prepare a room for him this Christmas? It's easy to get so caught up in the chaos of Christmas that you miss the joy of simply rejoicing in the presence of Jesus. Make time for him in a personal way every day. Like set aside 15 to 30 minutes just to read your Bible and pray. Don't wait, hear me, don't wait for some New Year's resolution to start that. Seriously. Seriously. Like, if, you, if you're waiting for New Year's to do that stuff, you ain't going to do it. Right? Set aside, like, and honestly, look, if you do, you may actually experience a Christmas vacation that's actually rejuvenating for once. Right? <laughs> Talk to him. Thank him. Worship him. Tell him happy birthday. Right? Ask him to help you resist indifference with joyful intentionality. To defy irritability and inconvenience with joyful sacrifice. To crucify hostility with joyful thanksgiving and worship. Things may happen that are out of your control this Christmas. I can guarantee they will. Do you trust him to be the king? If so, will you let go of your crown and joyfully lay it at his feet? Ask him to help you leverage your time and treasure this Christmas as avenues of rejoicing in Jesus. And when you fall short, I didn't say if, I said when, simply refix your eyes on your Savior King and receive his grace to continue. Because in his presence, there is fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is what Christmas is all about. Let's pray.